0: listening to Pythagoras'
1: Trousers. Hello and welcome to Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. A show in two parts. Today we've got the end of the Kepler mission, NASA's exoplanet mission that's discovered so much about planets beyond our solar system. But elsewhere, as well as missions ending, we've had missions beginning and results from old missions as well. To start off with, let's have a news roundup of what's been going on in astronomy with Sarah Roberts and Dr Matt Smith. Let's start off, uh, Sarah. We've got um, a new mission on Mars.
0: Yes, we have. So NASA's InSight mission landed on Mars successfully on the 26th of November. So that was last Monday. Um, So the hardest part of any mission that plans to send a lander to another planet is the landing itself. And this is what we saw on the 26th of November. And so we were lucky enough to have a live feed of the landing. We could watch as the lander plunged into the Martian atmosphere, at which point it was moving about 20,000 kilometers an hour. Uh, So it was moving really fast, um, which of course means that there was a lot of heat, so we were able to watch as the heat shield did its job, so it protected the spacecraft from intense temperatures reaching over a thousand degrees, Um, and then we could see a large parachute was successfully deployed, um, and as it came closer to the ground we finally saw the thrusters ignite bringing the lander in for a soft landing.
1: And of course, when you say we see, we see all of this, I mean, the, a lot of it is on the live feeds is animations because we're just getting a radio transmission of, of what's happening, right? So it's it's they call this often the seven minutes of terror because this is happening on Mars. It's about maybe it's, a, I forget exactly what the light travel time was, 20 minutes light travel time away. So by the time we get the signal, it's already happened. So this is nerve wracking for the scientists who spent, years on these projects i guess
0: yeah exactly it's absolutely terrifying for them i can imagine Uh, but this one was successful so no need to worry now Um, insight has landed on the surface and it can get to work Um, So unlike the famous selfies that we had from Curiosity, InSight won't be sending back impressive pictures. And it's not a rover, so it won't be roving across the surface like Opportunity. Um, Instead, it will be turning its gaze downwards. Um, So it's equipped with a drill that will be digging deeper than any other lander has dug before. we will be going about four and a half meters below the surface. Um, And there it will be measuring heat from the planet's core, Um, and using seismic detectors that hope to provide us with clues about the formation of Mars, maybe the formation of other rocky planets, um, and tell us a bit about how and why Mars changed from this lush, habitable world that it used to be into the dry, frigid planet that we see today.
1: It's going to be fascinating to learn about the interior of Mars as well. I know one of the things it's looking at is whether Mars wobbles as it spins and that tells us whether it's got a liquid core or a solid core and, and, what, and what the interior is made of. So it's going to be fascinating to do these things we're used to doing on Earth uh, on, uh, on the red planet, which is a, a, very, a, a very exciting mission. Uh, Coming back close to home, we're celebrating now um, in November uh, this year 20 years of the International Space Station. So, it first launched, uh, the first bits of it launched in 1998. It took a couple of years to be inhabited by astronauts and has gradually built up its uh, habitation. It's now there are uh, normally six people up on the space station uh, at any one time. Uh, It's a collaboration, of course, a massive international collaboration between. Uh, a a huge range of uh, countries so uh, the United States and Russia are the big partners the European Space Agency send a a bunch of stuff up they send astronauts up all the time Uh, and then uh, there's also Japan Canada uh, and uh, a dozen or so other countries that have been uh, involved uh, in the mission a lot of it's medical research um, and, and materials research rather than say astronomy that you might expect and I guess one of the things with the International Space Station is that it's it's made spaceflight almost routine, and and Matt, I don't know about you, but when the space station launched, you know, I was um, in in high school and starting university around the time it was it was going. And it, do, do you think that space flight has come, become kind of routine with that? Is it just something with, that we do as a?
2: Yeah, as I think it's 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 remarkable. We're now, you know, you don't see in the news when anyone goes up back back when mm. we were kids. You know, every single space flight would have been probably live on the news uh, Mm. going up. And it's remarkable it's become routine. Um, But I think we should always remember it's You can always see it and it's remarkable in the sky.
1: Yeah, and the problem with it being routine, I guess, is that it does lose that media impact. So it's not quite as uh, exciting as going to the moon or going to Mars or or whatever. So maybe uh, um, uh, maybe uh, those will spark interest or even more interest again. But we did have a lot of interest here in the UK a few years ago, of course, when Tim Peake, uh went up to the uh the space station so a british uh astronaut so the first uh astronaut to be uh, the first british person to fly up under the european flag we've had um helen sharman before of course uh, back in the 1990s went to the mir space station uh, tim Peake went up he did experiments uh, and then uh, landed after about six months, came back to Earth. And uh, his landing capsule is currently on show in the museum in Cardiff, National Museum in Cardiff. And, and Sarah, I think, have you seen the capsule? Have you been to, to look at it? I
0: actually haven't. No, oh. I didn't get a chance to see it. I gave a talk at the museum on the launch of the exhibition, but it was so busy um, but I didn't actually get a chance to go and see it. Well,
1: it's there till March, so plenty of opportunities. Yeah, I will to...
0: definitely be going down at the first opportunity.
1: Yeah. Something you think you'll go and try and see the capsule? Yeah, I definitely would like to go see it. So something to look at if you're in the uh, Cardiff area, or even if you want to travel from far afield to come and see. It's touring the UK uh, at the moment. Uh, moving back uh, further afield, we said space flight is routine. We have all sorts of space telescopes uh, up there, and we've done lots of uh, research uh, with data and information from space telescopes. And a story that came out involving people in Cardiff, in fact, uh, Matt, involved yourself uh, here in Cardiff, was looking at supernovae and uh, these exploding massive stars and the stuff that's produced uh, as part of them. Um, and in fact, uh, some, some sort of key ingredients that we rely on here here on Earth as well. So what, what's the what's the findings here? So this study is looking at um,
2: a supernova remnant, so a star that's exploded, a massive star that's come to the used up all its fuel at the end of its life, goes supernova, big explosion, and the key is this factory when all this kind of material is thrown out, we think it's a key place that forms many of the molecules and compounds we see around today. Um, But there's always been a big mystery: how much is produced? You know, it's an explosion; it's got really hard to could be really hard to make stuff because you get really hot temperatures you get shocks which can blow stuff up so what this study did was it focused on um, this supernova remnant also looked at another one and combined data from a couple different space observatories and that was the key and with one of them they were able to identify in this supernova remnant um, a signature of silica Um, so stuff like sand we see on the earth today Um, and then with the another observatory we were then able to measure how much of this Molecule existed, and with that we can then work out how much of these um, bigger elements are kind of returned from a star explosion.
1: And so we we find that the the silicon in the form of the, the silica is, is used in also is used in glass, for example. Yeah, it's
2: one of the most common substances right. um, we see today.
1: Uh, so all of that, if you're if next time you pick up a glass or look through a window, then you're looking at uh, through material that was probably formed in a uh, in an exploding star at some point, which is. Uh, Quite fun, I think. Quite remarkable. Uh so uh that's that's where molecules originated here on earth but what about other planets well uh we've got discoveries of uh, other planets coming thick and fast all the time but uh, a new one has come out around a star called Barnard's star Barnard's star was named after uh, Edward Barnard an astronomer active ar- around the turn of the uh, 20th century uh, and uh, this star is now the closest no- sorry this planet is now the closest known planet around a single star so Sarah what have, what have you got on this
0: yeah, so starting with Barnard's star, I mean, it's a pretty famous star already uh, for a couple of reasons. The first is that it's the closest single star uh, to our solar system. Um, it's about
1: six light years away, I think. So that's the closest stars are about four light years away, so it's yeah. not far.
0: So yeah. the there are three closest stars, but they're part of a system, a triple star system. And actually, there's an exoplanet in that system. Um, But Barnard's star is the closest single planet, which is quite exciting. And it's also a star that's famous for its motion. Um, So most stars that we see on our night sky um, stay virtually in the same place from century to century, at least um, as far as we can see with our naked eyes. Um, But this doesn't mean they're not moving, in fact the fastest stars are moving at over a thousand kilometres a second, which is quite extraordinary. Um, But because they're so far away, we don't really notice this motion, Um, and a way I normally explain this is if you imagine you're sitting on a deck chair at the beach, you can watch someone leisurely walk their dog along an entire stretch of beach, while at the same time a cargo ship on the horizon may not appear to move at all. Um, Of course, the cargo ship will be moving about 40 kilometers an hour, whereas an average walker is moving about 10 times slower, Um, but it's the distance that affects our perception of how things are moving. Um, And Bernard's star is one of the exceptional stars that shows dramatic motion across the sky. So, in fact, in an average lifetime, it'll move across a patch of sky equal to about the diameter of the full moon. Um, And this is because it's so close to us, so we can really see its movement across the sky and we have now found an exoplanet around it, making it even more extraordinary. This is the second closest exoplanet to Earth, um, and it's what we call a super-Earth. So it's a rocky world, um, similar in size to the Earth. It's about three times more massive than our planet. Um, But other than that, it's quite a different place. Bernard's star is what we call a red dwarf star. Um, So it's much cooler and dimmer than our sun. So while this planet is orbiting much closer than Earth is to the sun, Um, it's only getting about 2% of the energy that we get from the sun. So it would probably be a very cold shadow cover of the world that is unlikely to harbour life.
1: But being very close, it's something that we could maybe go and investigate in more detail with future space telescopes or or ground-based telescopes, which is quite exciting. It's close enough to be able to um, not quite reach out and touch, but go and uh, find uh, more information about. It's certainly true we're finding out so much more about planets around other stars, and one mission that's helped us understand that in great detail is the Kepler mission, NASA's mission to explore exoplanets beyond our own solar system. It ran out of fuel earlier this year, and the mission came to an end, but it had been up there for nine successful years, albeit with a mission in two phases. More on that later. To find out more about the Kepler mission, I spoke to Dr Herod Barronson from NASA Ames Research Centre, and I began by asking him... uh, what Kepler's aims had been.
3: Well, Kepler was NASA's first exoplanet mission. And what that means is that Kepler is this big telescope in space and it's been staring at large numbers of stars with the aim of finding planets around those stars. The big question that Kepler set out to answer is just exactly how common are planets? Because 20 years ago, we got the first discoveries of really big Jupiter-sized planets, which are much easier to detect than very small Earth-sized planets. And the big contribution made by Kepler is that now we know that there are planets, small planets everywhere, perhaps trillions in our galaxy, because uh, Kepler alone has now found 2,600 exoplanets in one tiny patch of the sky. And that's a breakthrough discovery. And now we know that we can build new missions to go and explore them in more detail.
1: And so what kind of planets has uh, Kepler found? You say we we used to know about these Jupiter, these very big planets around other stars, which are easier to pick up. Um, Kepler's found, uh, you say, a greater variety. What, what kind of variety of planets are we finding?
3: Well, one of Kepler's biggest discoveries, perhaps, is that planets are incredibly diverse. For example, we found these hot lava planets. Uh, we found cold, icy planets far away from their star. We found a rocky Earth-sized planet, but we also found uh, large super-Earth planets, as we call them, which have atmospheres that appear to be much bigger than Earth's atmosphere and perhaps that's one of the most surprising finds by Kepler is that it most commonly detected was something about twice the size of the earth and in our solar system we don't actually have a planet in that size range so we're still figuring out what those planets are like and what their atmospheres are like for example.
1: You you mentioned our solar system then so we we have uh, eight planets in our solar system we have the four rocky planets near the sun uh, that are bit like the Earth, maybe a little bit smaller uh, for a couple of them. And then we've got Jupiter and Saturn, the massive planets, and Neptune and Uranus, uh, the uh, the ice giants that are uh, they're about five times the size of the Earth. And it's, it's that gap between Earth and then five times the size of the Earth. That's this really fascinating gap, because it, knowing what those planets are like is is something that we can't, we, well, we had no way of predicting. And, and Kepler's done something towards helping us understand what these planets might be like. Is that
3: right? That's right. So uh, Kepler is actually a beautifully simple instrument in the sense that what it's been doing is it's measuring the brightness of a large number of stars um, very frequently in time. And so if you just look long enough at a star and if you're just lucky lucky enough to have the right um, uh, uh, point of view, then whenever a planet passes between us and that star, you might see a small dip in the brightness just because the planet is moving in front of its star and blocking a tiny little uh, bit of the light of the star. And not only does that tell us that there are planets there, we can actually measure the size of these planets by measuring the, the amount of light being blocked. And by measuring how often the dip returns, we were able to measure the length of a year, so the orbital period of those planets around those stars. And already that alone has given us a lot of insights into exactly how common different types of planets are and how frequently they occur as a, a function of the distance from their host star.
1: And, and this measurement that it makes, this uh, this looking for the planet to go, go in front of the star, you say it's a very simple method in principle. You, you wait and wait for a planet to pass in front of its its parent star. But the, to actually make that measurement the, the spacecraft has to be incredibly stable, its camera has to be incredibly stable. Uh, is it fair to say that that's the biggest challenge that, that Kepler has to face?
3: Absolutely. So the big revolution of Kepler was that it launched with a a camera that was the most precise camera ever built and launched in, in space. You know, Earth, for example, is about 100 times smaller in diameter than the sun. And so it's really just a tiny little dot that, that crosses the sun if you were... Uh, in an alien spaceship and you flew away from the solar system, Earth would be really hard to see. It would be a little bit like uh, watching a mosquito fly in front of the bright headlights of a car. So you need incredibly sensitive detectors which very accurately measure uh, the light. And that's exactly why Kepler was built, why it was launched, and it's exactly what it did.
1: Kepler launched in 2009. And what was the original expected lifetime of the mission? How, How long was it hoped that Kepler would run for?
3: So, Kepler was originally designed to run for about four years, uh, which it did successfully. We we designed it for four years because if you're looking for sort of an Earth-sized planet in the habitable zone around the Sun-like star, you would expect to see three or maybe four dips, which would be just about enough to uh, confirm your detection.
1: And so, those those three dips, which is those three blips, equally spaced blips, uh, dips in light from the star, would, would tell us an Earth-like planet, and then... You need those three, though, because there are lots of other things that could give an apparent dip in a star, I guess.
3: Yeah, that's right. One of the um, uh, challenges that astronomers face is that a star isn't just a uh, stable lamp. It's actually a big hot ball of gas, and, and uh, there's a whole nuclear fusion process going in, in the core, and at the surface of the star, you might see star spots appear, which is something we see on our sun, actually, like little dark spots. And so you have to look really precisely and long enough to make sure you can disentangle uh, spots on the star which come and go from the planets which are more regular but perhaps less frequent.
1: And so once you've done that you've identified these three dips you've said there's a there's a a planet going around this star Uh, Kepler as you mentioned can measure it's the size of the planet can measure the, the length of the planet's years is there anything else we can really tell from Kepler itself?
3: Um, yeah, there's, it's actually surprising how creative uh, scientists have been, which is, I guess, the story with any Na- mission NASA builds, which is that uh, you build it for, to fulfill one certain purpose and you go on to uh, meet that purpose. But then you come up with a, a whole range of um, applications of the data, which you never expected. For example, one example is that if you have big planets and small planets in a system, then the gravitational pull of the big planets will tend to have a small effect on the length of a year of the smaller planets. The small planets will be pushed back and forth a bit by the big bully planet. Uh, And we can actually measure those small, sometimes minute-sized deviations in when a small planet transits because a big massive planet is pulling on it. And from that measurement, from the measurement of the small deviations in the lengths of the years of those planets, we can actually infer the mass of a planet, so we measure how how heavy it is, and we combine it with the radius of the planet. We can start to uh, reason about the density of the planet, uh, and from that we can then try to take the first steps into trying to reason how uh, what the composition of the planet might be like.
1: Most of the, uh, the the planets that Kepler's found, or a lot of them, have been fairly fairly far away in terms of uh, sort of the local galactic neighborhood, as it were. And if they're far away, it's then harder to try and see them in detail. But, what kind of what chances are there of or what luck have people had taking the discoveries from Kepler and, and pointing other, maybe bigger telescopes at them to find out more?
3: Well, actually we, we did get lucky and we did find a few planets around nearby bright stars. Of course, Kepler's big question was to um, carry out his first census of planets and, and what it did is it found that Kepler that planets appear to be everywhere and so that really raises the potential for life to exist elsewhere in the universe which is ultimately uh, one of the drivers behind this mission um now that we know that planets are everywhere the question becomes how are we going to study them in more detail and learn more about them so kepler started this by finding a number of planets around uh nearby stars uh i think the most nearby planet kepler found is about 100 light years away which is you know pretty close if you consider that the galaxy is thousands of light years across, perhaps uh, 30,000, 50,000 light years across. Um, And that's interesting because if you find a planet around a bright star, you can then start to use more sophisticated equipment to try to split the light of the star in its different colors. And we do this because different chemical elements, different molecules and atoms that make up atmospheres of planets, will show slightly different fingerprints in the colors of light we call this a spectrum and we use spectrographs um, to split up the light The Hubble Space Telescope has started doing this and very very soon we will get the James Webb Space Telescope which will continue this with even more sophisticated equipment
1: So Kepler has given us this, this amazing census of stars that, that we can uh, and planets that we can go and look at with with other telescopes and gives us an idea of what um, uh, what, what types of planets are out there. Now, Kepler Kepler ran for, for four years, you say. It was designed to run for four years, and it, and it did that. But it launched nine years ago. Um, it's not just been sitting on its laurels for the past five years. Something happened a few years ago that changed the way Kepler operated. So can you, can you tell us about what happened in about 2013-ish that changed the way the Kepler mission was running?
3: That's right. So the first four years of Kepler proceeded exactly as planned, and so we found that planets are very common. And right after the end of the nominally planned mission, Uh, Two of the reaction wheels on board Kepler failed. So we use these reaction wheels, spinning wheels, to keep the telescope very, very stable. We need to keep the telescope stable because that's how we get very accurate measurements. Now, um, we only had four of these reaction wheels uh, and two broke. So we could only keep two axes in space stable. And of course, the universe has three dimensions, uh, as you might know. So we struggle to keep the third dimension stable, the roll axis of the telescope. And many people thought that was the end of Kepler. It was a successful mission. And after four years, perhaps that was the end. But some of our incredible engineers figured out a, a really ingenious solution to this, which is they figured out that if we would point the solar panels of the telescope to the sun in just the right way, then Kepler would start sailing the radiation pressure from the sun. So the the light in space actually exerts a force upon the spacecraft. It tries to push the spacecraft. And if you figure out how to minimize that push by um, pointing your telescope in just the right way to the sun, you can still keep your telescope stable. And that was never done before, but the engineers of Kepler managed to make this work and they managed to enable Kepler to continue its survey for planets and other astrophysics. Uh, we no longer looked at the same patch for four years because we had slightly different pointing requirements, slightly different geometrical requirements. So we started executing a big survey across the, gal- uh, across the galaxy. And all this new phase of the mission, we called it the K2 mission.
1: The, the other thing that changed with the K2 part of the mission is that um, the, the data, which until at uh, that point, and in the main part of the mission was what say, proprietary. So it was owned by the, kept by the, the science teams for a little bit before being released to the, the wider world. Um, the K2 mission became essentially public data straight away. Uh, what what difference did that make to the way the, the team was operating?
3: That's right. So we were suddenly faced with a new mission that wasn't originally planned. And of course, to um, show NASA and show the scientific community and the public that the mission is worth pursuing, it is important that you show that the science you can do with the mission is, is important and new and must be executed and, and capable and, um, and feasible, I mean. Um, so what we decided to do was, well, the main mission is now over. From now on, all the data we take, let's make it public straight away so that everybody in the world can try to help us um, show that good science is still possible with Kepler. And so that was a resounding success because not only did we very quickly uh see that K2 was delivering state of the art science uh we also saw that we ended up getting many more users because anybody could now analyze the data straight away and go in and discover planets straight away and in fact there's even car mechanics who ended up joining citizen science projects who uh, ended up contributing by finding planets in the K2 data
1: so so you've got you've got the K2 mission with all this open data and, and people contributing uh, huge, uh, huge things from all over the world, from all walks of life. Um, were there any particular highlights of K two, the the second part of the mission that that were uh, that uh, have been uh, that have stood out over the past few years?
3: You know, a really interesting aspect of K two is because we now uh, we're surveying different parts of the galaxy, and all the observations were planned and analyzed by uh, the community and the public. Uh, we started doing more diverse science. For example, K two studied. Black holes. It uh, discovered new asteroids. It measured supernova explosions, and perhaps um, those supernova explosions are some of the most interesting results to have to, to be coming out of K2 right now. For example, uh, here in the U.S. on, on Super Bowl Sunday uh, earlier this year, uh, a supernova explosion, which is the dramatic end of a star's life when a when a star blows itself to smithereens in, in just a few uh, just a few seconds. Um, a supernova explosion went off in a galaxy that Kepler was looking at. And that's interesting because for one of the first times ever, we were able to detect the variation in the light from before the explosion happened because we were already looking at the galaxy. And getting these um, physics, getting the observations in the first minutes, in the first hours, is really difficult because you never quite know where in the universe a star is going to explode in advance. Um, and so we're now s- starting to see papers, scientific publications come out to truly really study the start of these important explosions. And these supernova explosions are actually being used to measure the uh, size and the expansion of the universe. So they're very important measurements. And who would have thought that an exoplanet mission would go on to study uh, supernova explosions and the, and the structure of the cosmos, right? Right.
1: Uh, it, it's, uh it's remarkable that it's remarkable that's been able to to do so much and it, i guess you some people might say well you know it's just luck it happens to be look, looking in the right place at the at the right time but it, it's it's a dose of luck combined with a an enormous uh dose of creativity and tenacity of the the engineers and the, the scientists behind the mission to enable it to continue in such a way i guess it's a it's a huge success story in success story in that uh, in that regard
3: That's right. And actually, there was no luck involved, because what happened is that the scientists who came up with this novel idea to um, try to capture an explosion like this, they came to the mission, just like other scientists, with a proposal. And in that proposal, they described, look, if we monitor a few thousand galaxies at the same time, then perhaps, or statistically, we know that in a few of them, a supernova explosion will occur, because we think a supernova explosion happens about once every century in a given galaxy. Um, And so there was no luck involved, just really smart scientists who convinced their peers through the peer-review process that this is something Kepler should be doing. And the scientific community ranked this proposal high. We executed the observations, and we get incredible new science. And this is, of course, how many missions work. The results you see coming out of a mission is often the work of careful planning over many years by scientists with creative new ideas.
1: So possibly a bit a bit harsher of me to blame it uh, blame it on, uh, on on luck there, uh, yeah. A lot of hard work by by a lot of people to make it to make it happen. Um, so the Kepler mission is over. The spacecraft has, has run out of the fuel it needs to be able to to point and to be able to turn and send its data back uh, back to Earth. Um, what's what's ahead for exoplanet missions, both at NASA and elsewhere around the world? Here in Europe, for example, what what are the next things that people should look forward to?
3: Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, Kepler is actually not finished in the sense that it has produced such a gold mine of data, and the discoveries are made by humans on Earth, not by the the robot in space. And so it's going to take another decade to actually get all the discoveries out of Kepler. Now, Kepler isn't the end, because uh, now that we know that planets are are very common in the universe, um, we can ask the next question, which is, are we alone? Like, Could we detect the composition of atmospheres on those planets and perhaps even find signs of of life. Um, We now know that planets are ubiquitous, and so that has enabled new missions to be designed, which will focus on studying them in more detail. Um, For example, NASA launched a new mission in April called TESS, which is short for Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. And the goal of TESS is to monitor the entire sky to find a large number of planets around the most nearby and the brightest stars, because those are the planets most suitable to be studied by James Webb, which is the next step, which is we'll launched with this um, incredible spectrograph to split the light in its different colors. Um, that's the timeline on the, on the NASA side, is we have this uh, strategic sequence of missions, and perhaps after James Webb, we'll be able perhaps to have a mission that will take a direct image of a planet, although the technology there is, is uh, still being worked on. Um, and of course, on the European side, uh, there's also a lot of fascinating missions. Uh, being planned i'm I'm aware of the uh, ariel mission i'm aware of the chaos mission from the european space agency and the plato mission Uh, they're all fantastic projects that will teach us more about planets
1: i guess it shows that we're we're moving from the era of discovering exoplanets to then be able to study them in more detail so kepler was a we said was a survey mission it was looking looking to find out how many there were and where they were and roughly what they might be like but the next era of exoplanet research uh, is going to be fascinating in in actually finding out much more about these planets, I guess.
3: That's right. And at least on the NASA side, the big overarching question is, are we alone? And what I find fascinating is that slowly but surely, astronomers are becoming less important and you start to see more biologists and chemists and geologists join this endeavour. Because we no longer just look for these little dips in the light of a star to see if there's planets or not. We're now starting to move beyond that. And we actually need this expertise from all these various disciplines, from biology through chemistry to geology, to help understand the new data we are going to be getting in the next years on some of these most nearby planets.
1: Well, Kepler certainly was an important step in understanding the variety of planets there are out there. And who knows what we'll find out in the future about what those planets are like and maybe even whether we're alone in the universe. That's it for this month. My thanks to Hert, Sarah and Matt. Don't forget, you can find this episode and past episodes at pythagastro.uk, where you can also subscribe to the podcast. Until next month, goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Reese Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.